This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Pier 8, and we, we know lots of planning going on in the city. We had, uh, of course, uh, Glenn Norton in from Economic Development uh, the other day talking about uh, uh, the the great Hamilton consulate that they're going to uh, launch down in Toronto uh, to draw business here. Uh, also, the waterfront ongoing discussion as well. Pier 8 is planned to have a new residential development, which will be alongside an industrial site. The subdivision, which will have 1,500 residents, is expected to be unpacked by noise and, uh, noise and odor resulting from the adjacent industrial site. Uh, critics warn that this could, should be considered in the next planning phase uh, with an outline for how it is all going to be dealt with. To talk more about all of this, Chris Phillips is with us, City of Hamilton's lead on the West Harbor uh, Waterfront Project, and is with us now. Hello, Chris. How are you today? Very good, Scott. Good to be with you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, what's all the hubbub about, uh, Chris? Uh, are we worried that once these things get built, we'll have complaints on our hands? No, I don't think so. I mean, first of all, maybe I, I'd kind of start by saying I'm not totally convinced that either today's headlines or even it, it, with respect to your, your lead-in uh, is an accurate depiction of the issues that were expressed yesterday. Uh, by that, what I really mean is that I don't think anyone is really suggesting that the city can't have both a dynamic waterfront where people can live, work, and play while at the same time we embrace our industrial past, present, and either even the future investments. And our vision uh, for the West Harbor, as we've talked before on this uh, on this show, uh, is really based on exactly that. It's a balance of interest. It's balancing uh, both the recreational, um, the uh, the on the water, uh, and the investment opportunities that exist on Pier Eight with the existing neighborhood, with the existing uses, as well as the industrial uh, users as well. Uh, Herman Turkstra, of course, has commented on this. Here's what he had to say. One of the commitments that had been made prior to 2012 was that the traffic management would be put in place before any development. That has not happened. Parts of it has happened, but the, the whole traffic management plan is not yet complete. I left that meeting yesterday thoroughly discouraged. I couldn't believe that that committee sat there and heard from two residents' associations and from a resident planner with a, working on his Ph.D. in planning telling them in no uncertain terms that the rough edges of what they were approving needed more talk. And I said to them, you're deciding today whether you're going to solve these issues in the city of Hamilton. Chris, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Well, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. And, and first of all, let, let me uh, be, uh, be clear. Mr. Turkstra is a, uh, is a longtime resident in the area, but a longtime community activist and a longtime community leader. I mean, uh, I've had the opportunity to work with uh, Mr. Turkstra uh, both in this position for the last eight years or so, but, but certainly in previous uh, parts of my career. And, and I think he's a, uh, you know, a great community leader, both uh, past president and I, I'm sure well into the future. I think to unpack some of his uh, his arguments there for a bit, I, I think it's clear to kind of, you know, maybe to peel it back a bit and say, you know, I guess to a to a planner, of which I'm not, uh, or a planning lawyer, too often our issues kind of centered around these kind of buzzwords like official plans and secondary plans and zoning. But but I think what we really have to look at is that over the course of successive terms of council, going back all the way to the early 80s, the city and the community's vision is really clear. It wants the West Harbor to be a place where citizens, where families, children, seniors, all have access to the water's edge, have uh, be able to enjoy the public amenities at the waterfront, as well as support the creation of new residential and commercial opportunities so that people can live, work, and play all in the immediate area. 
I know that sounds like a high-level kind of vision, but now what it's time to actually start getting to the point where we're implementing that vision. Um, Mr. Churchster did raise the, the aspect of the North End Traffic Management Plan. Uh, he is correct. It's not complete. But I will tell you, it is 90% complete. Uh, 90% of the plan has actually been implemented to date. And anybody who's driven into the North End, uh, uh, because I've certainly had the calls from people who they see the narrowing in the streets, they see the the knockdown sticks, they certainly see the 30 uh, kilometer an hour speed limit. So 90% of the plan has been implemented in in a temporary fashion. 40% 40% of the plans actually been implemented with permanent fixtures with the remaining elements uh, are all planned to be implemented over the next day and uh, next year or not. Um, there are a couple measures though that, that uh, maybe need to be looked at um, and, and council may have to weigh in as to whether or not they want them to be uh, implemented. I'll give you a great example is, is that the plan uh, does call for a roundabout to be located at James and Strawn. And for those of you not familiar, for your, your listeners, it's just as you go over the train tracks uh, at James Street with Leona Station mm-hmm. on the east, and, and then uh, Strawn is, is the next street. That area there in the North End Traffic Management Plan, when, when setting sail was thought of back in the early 2000s, was to be converted into a roundabout. But that was long before the vision of a West Harbor GO station. You have the Lakeshore West Line, uh, starting from and ending right there at the corner. Mm-hmm. Perhaps looking and reevaluating at that intersection uh, it really does make, uh, um, does make sense, and, and uh, our, our staff will look at it, and then they'll uh, take a report back to council. But I think that it's important to remember our plan is ongoing. We're moving uh, forward step by step. Yesterday, just one uh, of the next steps into moving us forward to actually finally implementing this vision for the waterfront that uh, citizens have had for uh, nearly two decades now. Uh, Obviously, Chris, big changes have already come to Hamilton. More are on the way. Is this NIMBYism? Uh, I don't think it's uh, NIMBYism per se. I I think that there are general and very legitimate concerns that that the neighborhood right adjacent to the waterfront uh, have. Mr. Turkser raises those concerns, as do many others. They're fully legitimate. Um, ensuring that the neighborhood can coexist uh, and is not, uh, is, is not affected adversely is the city's first, uh, first and, and paramount kind of thing that we're looking to do and implement. At the same time, change is difficult. Change is difficult for many. And, and in the case of the West Arbor, and specifically some of the planning studies that, that have uh, that have happened in this area. I mean, it's long overdue to start to get on with action as opposed to uh, continuously talking about it and, and just planning for it. Setting sail, which is the secondary plan that lays the vision, was passed by council in 2003. We're now in 2017, and we're just finally, as of yesterday, and assuming that council then approves what the planning committee approved last week, we are just getting to the point where you can now legally, through bylaw, put residential development on Pier 8. It seems like we've been talking about residential development on Pier 8 Mm. for the better part of two decades. Mm. And now it's finally at that point where, by bylaw, you actually can take the next stage to uh, develop residential construction down there. Uh, Again, Chris, you've said uh, this is all about balance. How do you do that? How do you build a residence in an area where noise, uh, smell could be an issue? Uh, Our residents, uh, will they be aware of that? Should they just be aware of that by purchasing where they are? Uh, How do you deal with that so you don't uh, have complaints? You know, I'm thinking 
thinking similarly to, you know, the situations we may have with noise on the waterfront. Are these future problems? How do you deal with them now? Well, let's first remember that there's people who live there right now. Um, in fact, directly across the street Good point. From, from the in- industry, uh, there, there's people who live right on Burlington Street. There, yeah. there are neighborhoods that are surrounded, including the North End neighborhood and yeah. many of the other neighborhoods. Uh, and, and it's not just in the West Harbor. There are people who live around the industry sure. uh, in Hamilton and for the industrial Bayfront area uh, for generations. Um, in fact, many of those neighborhoods used to house the, those, the employees who mm-hmm. used to go to work in those industrial uh, areas. So, so that's the first is to remember that this isn't new. Uh, people are living down there. I think the second piece is, and, and to, to be fair to the industrial users, there have been great strides made by all industrial users, the city included, uh, into ensuring that the waterfront is less noisy, um, uh, uh, that the air quality is much better than it has been uh, in any time in our history. And, and all the companies, including those who presented yesterday and still have concerns uh, you know, they, they continue to make strides to ensure uh, that the, uh, the health and safety, as well as, the, um, as well as the lifestyle of those who live around them, continue is not impeded by any way. I, I think it's clear for us, uh, we, we are not trying to restrict industries' operations or their investments. At the same time, we're looking to make that balance. Anyone who's been down to West Harbor, though, I don't think you could find uh, a more, um, an area that is... Uh, geographically placed to really show how that buffer can take place. If you look at the new brewery, which mm. is sitting right basically on the, uh, uh, on the uh, periphery of, uh, of where we're talking, because that is Pier, uh, Pier 10 right yeah. there at Ferguson and Burlington Street, the new brewery, fantastic new space, has an event space and an and a, um, outdoor patio event space as well. Uh, that's right beside Parrish and Heimbecker and Burning, Birmingham, just up there. Just across the street from it is Eastwood Park, which has a, an arena, soccer field, baseball diamonds, splash pad. You've got the Haida and the uh, HMCS uh, star right adjacent to it. And then you have the Pier 8 development. There's definitely a buffer that allows um, the uh, the new residential development on Pier 8 uh, to coexist with the industrial users. Um, will, we, will we certainly put measures in place to ensure that those people who choose to invest, uh, live, work, and play uh, on Pier 8, uh, that they realize that those things are there? Yeah, and, and we've actually taken some measures yesterday to show that we're taking kind of a, a measured approach to this. We're invoking what's called a Class 4 uh, area through the Ministry of the Environment, which basically allows, it, it, it speaks exactly for situations like this, where you have uh, industrial uses next to uh, what would be future residential uses, and what it does is it allows the thresholds for noise to actually be elevated from what it would be under normal circumstances. Then we will implement things like warning clauses on title that, that ensure that those purchasers who buy in, into the new development on period understand what is happening in the area. But again, I'm going to come back to let's not forget that there's people who are living there directly today. Is this a good problem to have, Glenn? Or Chris, sorry. Um, good problem in what sense? Well, in you know, this is development. When there's development, there's change. When there's change, there's always debate. There's always discussion. You're always going to have these sort of uh, sometimes heated discussions. It's it's a good position to be in, is it not, Chris? 
It sure is. Look, this is a, a fantastic opportunity. Many people look at this site and say that, uh, that this is one of the jewels that Hamilton has. It's one of the last stretches of urban waterfronts in a true urban uh, nature uh, on Lake Ontario. Uh, the city wants to get it right. Uh, the community demands that we get it right. And, and I think people like yourself and others in the media certainly are, are in there as well. I think after 20 years of discussing this and looking at all the different parameters, it's time to kind of continue down the path uh, to get to the next step uh, to, to ensure that, that we can balance the interests as best as we can and that we get on with the development so that we can realize the vision that many citizens have been looking for for over two decades. Well said. Chris Phillips has been with us, City of Hamilton's lead on the West Harbor Waterfront Project. Uh, keep up the great work, Chris. Thanks very much for the time. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, we've talked at length uh, on this show in regard to the opioid crisis uh, that is in uh, pretty much uh, right the way across this country. The number of opioid prescriptions filled in the Hamilton area is well above the provincial average in climbing. The numbers are alarming considering the ongoing issues communities are having uh, with opioid addiction. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Michael Parkinson is with us, drug strategy specialist with the Waterloo Crime Prevention Council and is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? So fine, Scott. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for taking the time to join us. Why is use on the increase, do you think, Michael? Well, it's, it's a great question, uh, particularly when you consider that Ontario is uh, in the midst of the worst uh, drug crisis uh, in our history, <laughs> and that's squarely due to uh, the prescribing of opioids, uh, and in particular, the prescribing of high-dose opioids. So it's it's not the kind of response um, you want to see from the healthcare sector and healthcare practitioners generally, um, and we should be alarmed. Ontario has long been a, uh, a province that has prescribed opioids in, in greater quantities than any other province in Canada. How do we explain that? Is it marketing? What is it? Well, I think, I think there's a bunch of factors that go, um, uh, go into it. Um, and, and it really starts, I think, probably in the late 90s um, when uh, Purdue introduced OxyContin into the Ontario market, and um, they made a number of claims. Some of them have been proven to be false. Um, some of them are suspect, but um, there was a tremendous amount of marketing. And, you know, a landmark study from the um, Canadian Medical Association Journal um, showed that the addition of OxyContin to the Ontario Drug Benefit Plan was associated with a rise in opioid overdose fatalities. And among the gems from that study um, was that most uh, uh, people who passed away from an opioid overdose had seen both a physician and a pharmacist in the month preceding their death. So we know and have known for some time that people using exactly as prescribed by their physician um, do suffer f from fatal uh, opioid overdoses. Um, but here we are in 2017, and it's been 17 years of um, record-setting opioid overdose fatalities in Ontario, and uh, the prescribing um, practices from uh, family physicians, uh, dentists, and others have not um, been ke have not kept up with the advancements in the clinical evidence. In the clinical evidence. Uh, we know says uh, don't prescribe opioids uh, as frequently as we have done historically. Uh, here's what Joshua Tepper had to say, CEO of Health Quality Ontario on the Bill Kelly Show this morning. And the other thing, we don't want to stigmatize the patient with chronic pain. We don't want to push people who have 
pain out of the healthcare system, feel ashamed in any way that they're taking opioids, uh, and possibly even dependent and addicted at this stage as well. So we want to create positive momentum with a report like this, not sort of a shame and name and blame uh, culture. How do you move this forward, Michael? How do you uh, how do you how do you get people off this stuff? Well, very carefully, <laughs> I think is the short answer. And Joshua's right. There's, um, um, we have um, spent billions of dollars um, providing subsidized opioids uh, through trusted health providers into a largely unsuspecting public. And uh, how do we move it forward? Well, number one, um, we must really talk seriously about health equity, about issues of stereotypes and stigmatization and sometimes outright discrimination, as Joshua alluded to. Uh, Number two, there has to be alternatives uh, for people uh, suffering from chronic pain, um, and there has to be alternatives for for people suffering uh, from acute pain, that opioids, you know, should not necessarily be the first go-to source and certainly not uh, in any long-term kind of basis. Um, Number three, there are tremendous numbers of people across Ontario who are currently addicted to opioids, and they're using exactly as prescribed by their physician. What concerns many um, in medicine and out of medicine is that uh, any attempt to dial back the opioid prescribing um, will leave people going through withdrawal and into the ready hands of a very robust and very dangerous black market. That is to say, you know, you don't want to cut people off opioids um, and expect them to cold turkey it out because we right. know that doesn't work. That's a fatal mistake. Uh, so is the addiction worse, uh, worth the relief? Well, um, you know, if you or I took opioids uh, as prescribed, you know, and then we stopped within a week, we would, we would show signs of withdrawal, right? And um, the way to beat withdrawal um, is to take more opioids. And at a certain point, um, w- w- with chronic pain patients, there's a, there's a phenomenon called uh, opioid um, hyperalgesia, and that is where the, uh, taking the medicine as prescribed does more harm than good, that it starts to cause more pain. So um, we need to be really careful about tapering people off uh, those, those opioids and and not send them into the black market because as we've talked about, I mean, it is a dangerous, dangerous time to be using substances from the black market, and that's due, of course, to the, uh, the prevalence of the bootleg fentanyls in in a range of substances. And if we follow the pattern in the states where you know opioid prescribing has started to be dialed back, um, but opioid overdoses uh, continue to rise, if you look at the states, what's driving that increase is the use of bootleg fentanyls. Mm. Uh, what did we do before these drugs existed? I mean, what did you do prior to the 90s? Well, um, a lot of people suffered, <laughs> uh, to be frank, and um, there weren't, I, I think, you know, through the 90s. So has this, so are we better off now or are we worse off? Well, we have an epidemic of death in Ontario, and, um, you know, our federal health minister has been uh, very clear in saying this is the worst uh, drug crisis in Canadian history. Are we better off? Um, I, I, I would suggest probably not if, if we're concerned about those rates of uh, opioid overdoses. You know, in Ontario, that's one person who dies every 12 hours, uh, and it's probably got worse since the coroner pushed out their data in 2015. 
So um, there are many adverse effects that come with opioid use, whether you're using it as prescribed or not. You, you look to things like absenteeism and lost labor productivity. You look to um, dramatic rises in hospital visits and admissions. You look to increased um, fatalities uh, and accidents uh, on Ontario's roadways uh, due to people who are driving under the influence of, of prescription opioids. What I think is clear is um, that there needs to be alternatives in pain management. And for that, you know, uh, governments at, at uh, provincial and federal levels need to step up and, and start subsidizing those, uh, those alternative treatments, whether it's massage therapy or, um, you know, specialized uh, services in chronic pain. But those services don't exist. And for physicians, you know, it's easier to spend... Uh, 30 seconds writing an opioid prescription than having a 30-minute conversation about um, chronic pain and, and potential uh, solutions thereof. I, and we've talked about this before, Michael, but what's the responsibility of Big Pharma in all of this? Is, isn't that how all of this started? Well, you would think they would bear some responsibility. I mean, because in, initially yeah. when this was prescribed, it was supposed to be a clean drug. It was the thing that was great about this drug was nothing like this was supposed to happen. And it, the exact opposite is effect has that's, happened. That's right. The, um, I, I mean, in the U.S., Purdue, the maker of OxyContin, was um, fined uh, about $730 million for misrepresenting OxyContin, and the claim was that addiction was rare, that it occurred in less than 1% of patients. And it wasn't based on good evidence. And, um, you know, those executives, they don't get jail time like the, the rest of us would for even just passing off a few OxyContin pills. In Canada, uh, there's a class action lawsuit that has been certified. Um, and, yeah, yeah, I think at the local level, you know, what is utterly frustrating for um, folks, not just in Hamilton, but right across uh, Canada is, you know, we're holding bake sales and garage sales and GoFundMe accounts um, to mitigate this crisis at the same time that uh, some of the pharmaceutical companies are pulling in billions and billions of dollars in profit. Um, from exactly. So why aren't they paying for part of this recovery considering, you know, they're partially responsible for the problem? Well, it would be a great question for um, folks at the provincial governments and at the at the federal governments. You know, in the U.S., what we're seeing is uh, some municipalities and um, some states who are suing uh, pharmaceutical companies to recover the costs because the costs uh, are really, really significant. If, and it's estimated, I think, in Ontario, and this is old data and probably conservative, the cost of not treating an opioid addiction is about $44,000 per person per year. Hmm. And that's cost to the private sector and, and to the public sector. So, you, you know, if you think there's maybe a minimum 50,000 people addicted or dependent on opioids in Ontario, that turns into a $2.2 billion annual problem. And, uh, yeah, I think everybody would appreciate a little financial help to dig us out of this mess. Uh, the report says that Ontario reveals almost 1.3 million prescriptions filled between the year April to March 20, uh, 2015 to 2016 in Hamilton, Niagara, Haldeman, Brant, local health integration networks, including Burlington. It translates to 90 opioid prescriptions filled per 100 population. Yeah, it's off the charts. It makes no sense. <laughs> it's, it's exactly what you that's wouldn't way want to off. do during an opioid crisis. Yeah, yeah, that's way off. And I mean, you know, it, it seems odd that we're paying attention to other things, and this is, as you said, way off the charts. 
yeah, it's 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 off the charts. And um, you, you know, those those opioids that are prescribed in your region, like other regions, I mean, they're subsidized by uh, drug benefit plans, right, With, through the public sector and through the private sector. Like, why <laughs> why is it so bad here? Do you think? Uh, in Ontario, I, I, I and in Hamilton specifically. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, most of the prescribing uh, of opioids is done by um, family physicians and general practitioners, and um, I, I think it's a bit unfair. And I'm not suggesting that you are, but I think it's unfair to blame physicians when you know a patient presents with sure. uh, lower back pain. I mean, it's very hard to diagnose successfully, and and it really does require more time in those specialized services that uh, too often don't exist in 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 our communities. So. Yeah, it's upside down. Uh, you can't make this stuff up. And, you know, 100 years ago, Bayer Pharmaceutical introduced uh, heroin um, into the North American market as a, uh, less addictive, a less addictive alternative to morphine. And um, and we should have learned 100 years ago what happens when you do that. You know, deaths went up, addiction went up, and we stopped doing that. And OxyContin came on the mar- market and was promoted by pharma, and we seem to have forgot all about that. But Remember, this drug has been passed through the regulators at Health Canada, through the uh, Food and Drug Administration. It is subsidized by governments uh, across Canada. It is prescribed by pharmacists. It is dispensed uh, by pharmacists, sorry. And here we are uh, in the worst drug crisis in the province's history and really hard to detect, i got to say, any sense of urgency or proportional response um, from senior levels of government. I mean, we have not responded to this crisis uh, like we would to SARS, for example. Well, you know, it seems like the whole discussion around marijuana and medical marijuana seems like a church picnic compared to this. It does seem like a church picnic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I think well said, Scott. (laughs) How... so where do you think this is this is going, Michael? Is this is the solution here just waiting for uh, big pharma to develop the next drug that is supposed to do something different than this one? Um, well, I think what's pretty clear by now to many uh, on the ground is is there are no adults in charge, and um, w- what we know is that there are many many agencies, uh, many uh, stakeholders who got us into this mess. Um, and, and it's dozens and dozens and dozens. Um, what I think we also have learned is um, there are significant issues of stereotype, stigmatization, and outright discrimination that um, among practitioners and, and, and sometimes from the very agencies whose purpose is to protect public health and safety, we have not seen that urgent and, and proportional response. Uh, we have not seen a collaborative uh, life-saving effort uh, really develop uh, almost anywhere in Canada. So m- my expectation is that things will get worse before they get better, and it's really just a question of how much worse. I, In my community of Waterloo Region, um, we're looking at some t- early 2017 data, and I can tell you that uh, in the first four months of this year, we think uh, that there have been 28 fatal opioid-related overdoses. And we know that through the good work of our local police force and uh, uh, paramedics. For context, um, we lost 24 people total to an opioid overdose uh, two years ago. So we're on track for more than a 300% rise in Waterloo Region. And 
like I said, local municipalities right across this country uh, really need some senior leadership, some some help, and, and a real sense of urgency and proportionality. If you think about how we, you know, responded to SARS, we weren't relying on public opinion. We deployed an emergency response, and you got to wonder at what point. Uh, does this crisis um, necessitate a, an emergency response? I mean, those protocols are in place, those mechanisms exist, um, but they are not being invoked, uh, except in British Columbia, where, you know, last year the, the province declared a uh, provincial overdose health emergency. You know, uh, what what a, a great analogy uh, with the comparison between SARS, because, I mean, m- and many said that it was, it, 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 there was too much scaring going on with the whole scare, uh, SARS crisis. Uh, but, you know, this barely gets mentioned when you think of the coverage, uh, and not so much the coverage in the media, but certainly the attention that it received from government. Uh, it was astounding what we did with SARS. And, and it's amazing that we don't really know what to do with this, considering this is all government approved. This is all government legislated. Yeah. And and and, and thank heavens for, you know, the media getting involved in this issue, because how else would Canadians know? It's not like um, health agencies generally are issuing alerts and uh, monitoring in real time and uh, responding with that same sense of urgency that we saw during SARS or that we would see with influenza or mumps outbreaks uh, or road safety uh, blitzes and whatnot. Um, so, you know, hats off to the media for letting Canadians know that uh, about the scale and scope of of this crisis. Um, Will governments be wary to approve drugs like this in the future? How does it change how they approve these? Because again, they were sold a bill of goods uh, from the pharma companies on this, what it would and wouldn't do. Uh, Does that change the selection process? um, Well, that's a deep regulatory question, and um, I'm outside of those circles. I Certainly at the FDA, um, their approval mechanism has come under uh, tremendous scrutiny uh, over the last few years for uh, the membership of uh, committees there having ties to pharma. We've seen a bit of an uproar uh, over the development of the opioid guidelines in uh, Ontario um, because a a committee member had ties to um, Purdue specifically, but other pharmaceutical companies as well. We have seen um, an opioid lobby in Canada that is um, urging uh, that tamper-resistant um, formulations, those be the go-to for uh, physicians. But, I, I mean, I think tamper-resistant formulations, I mean, you got to remember most opioid use is, is oral, right? Mm. And, um, and that includes people who are using as prescribed, of course, but people who are using illicitly as well. So... Whether it has implications, um, well, let's hope so. Let's hope we've learned a few things out of this mess and um, can apply those lessons learned so we don't repeat it down the line. But, uh, you know, that, that's the league of multi-billion-dollar corporations and um, uh, deep regulatory uh, folks that, um, you, you know, it's a bit of a mystery how, how these substances ever got approved in the first place. Yeah, that, that's what's confusing to me. Um, so are we doing anything to keep new patients off these? I can understand once the genie's out of the bottle in some poor soul's life, but what about prescribing these moving forward? Has, has that changed, how we dole these out to new patients and, 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 and of course, uh, uh, getting more addicted? Well, um, the research that uh, emerged today, uh, um, it's great research. I mean, we're lucky to have uh, folks like the 
Ontario Drug uh, Policy Research Network um, digging in, and, um, and and I think their funding comes from uh, the Ministry of Health. So kudos to them. Um, but that data, you know, is a year old. So what's happened in the last year? We don't know. Um, what I, I think will happen is opioid prescribing will start to be dialed back as as you know physicians and others pick up uh, the media reports and whatnot. Um, but like I said at the at, at the outset, um, there's deep concern for patients who are on opioids already just being cut off and then uh, turning to the black market. So you, you know the the guidelines um, will. will pro- for chronic non-cancer pain, we'll, we'll provide some clues for physicians. What we know is um, when the, those gui- guidelines in their first iteration, when they were developed in Hamilton in 2010, that there was not a lot of compliance by um, uh, physicians, hmm. that, um, and that remains a concern uh, to the present day. Michael Parkinson has been with us, Drug Strategy Specialist with the Waterloo Crime Prevention Council. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, Donald Trump criticized this week for providing classified intelligence to Russian officials. Vladimir Putin has now offered to provide the U.S. Senate with a transcript of the meeting in an, in an effort to quell concerns. To talk about this and other things, Trump, Harold Waller is with us, professor at McGill University, political science, and with us now. Hello, Harold. How are you today? I'm just fine, thanks. Thank you for taking the time to join us, Harold. What does it say when Russia is offering to provide a transcript for a meeting at the White House? I must say it's rather bizarre, and I think that uh, Vladimir Putin is sticking it to Donald Trump. Obviously, if there's a transcript, presumably the White House has it, and they could release it. Uh, but there's a question, if Russia has a transcript, how did they get it? Do they have a bug in the Oval Office? Or was Sergei Lavrov wearing a wire and recording the conversation? Hmm. I can't think of any other explanation. So it's kind of disturbing that the, the Russians have a transcript. Certainly one would expect foreign minister to report back to Putin as to what transpired, but to have a transcript, uh, that's quite extraordinary, I would think. And why would Putin even weigh in with this? I I think he's taunting Trump uh, and taunting the Americans. I mean, obviously he's been... Does this taunt Trump or does this taunt Americans that don't believe in him? I I think both. Uh, I I, I think Putin has been uh, aiming to uh, try to undermine the credibility of the United States and enhance the credibility of his own country. This has been going on for a while now, and this was, of course, a focal point of the uh, of the uh, campaign and the aftermath of the campaign. What role did Russia play? So I think he's continuing to do it, and uh, nobody seems to be able to uh, put a stop to it. I mean, Russia should not be meddling in internal American affairs, and uh, there's got to be a strong message sent to the Russians along those lines. What is Trump missing in all of this? Does he not see that Putin is mocking him here? I don't know. I I really don't understand the mind of Donald Trump. Uh, I I think that he was not well prepared to become president. Uh, I suspect that he he was surprised that he won the election. Um, He doesn't have the... uh, background in government that one would normally think would be important for a president to have, and therefore he's been making a lot of uh, very bad mistakes. 
um, when you couple his inexperience and lack of knowledge with his various personality traits, I, I don't think it's a uh, recipe uh, for success. So he needs to get his administration straightened out. He needs to learn how to take advice from people who know what's going on and to benefit from um, good staff. I'm not sure that he appointed uh, the best staff, frankly. Uh, here's what Trump had to say on his Russian meetings. So we had a very, very successful meeting with the foreign minister of Russia. Uh, our fight is against ISIS. Uh, as General McMaster said, uh, I thought he said, and I know he feels, that we had a, actually a great meeting. Here's what H.R. Uh, McMaster, National Security Advisor, had to say. National security has been put at risk by those violating confidentiality and those releasing information uh, to the press that, that, uh, that, could, that could be used, uh, connected with other information available uh, to, to make American citizens and others more vulnerable. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, on the comments, Harold, where uh, it's not so much this meeting that's a concern, it's the fact that people are leaking this. Isn't this their boat that's leaking? Shouldn't they be able to control their own message? Who's leaking things from their private meetings? Well, that's a good question because there were not that many people at the meeting, uh, so it ought to be possible for the White House to figure out who might be leaking it. Do they, not ha- do they not have control over their own staff, though? Um, clearly not. I mean, part of the problem is that, that many of the people staffing the government are not Trump appointees uh, because he has been very slow in appointing the people to the various uh, positions. That but considering all these messages are being missed or messed up, Harold, why, does not he, why doesn't he address this? Why doesn't he put these people in place that are somehow leaking his message instead of whining about this as an excuse all the time? Well, he's not the first president to face uh, leak problems. Uh, notoriously, of course, uh, Richard Nixon formed an outfit affectionately known as the Plumbers, a group which was uh, deputized to try to uh, plug leaks in his administration. So this is nothing new. Um, and I, I think when you have a president who is unpopular uh, with the press and with the um, political class in Washington, there's great temptation to leak. The press encourages it, and the government uh, doesn't necessarily know how to identify all the leakers. I, I think there's a tremendous leakage problem going on right now in Washington. Well, McMaster seems to present it like it's someone else's problem other than theirs. Well, it, it isn't. I mean, uh, you're right, absolutely, that the uh, administration has to take the responsibility of controlling the people working for it. Now, part of the problem might have been not the people who were in the room, but perhaps people who work for them. And as they went back and they uh, briefed their own staff about what was going on, and some of the staff are holdovers from the Obama years, uh, that could be a source of a leak. So it's, it's not something that can be fixed overnight. You've got to have people who are reliable and loyal to the president in all the key positions. And clearly, uh, Trump has not succeeded in doing that. Should that not have been done in the first 100 days, though, Harold? Well, unlike other countries, the U.S. has a very slow process of putting together an administration. 
it can easily take up to a year. I, I think it's quite interesting that in Korea they held an election the other day, and one day later the new president was sworn in. In the U.S., um, there, as you know, there's about uh, more than two-month interregnum between the election and the inauguration, and then the president has to nominate over a 1,000 people who have to be confirmed by the Senate. He has to appoint um, a couple thousand others, uh, and President Trump has been very slow in doing this. So um, that's why a lot of positions are still being held by people who worked under President Obama. Would they be out to sabotage the new president? Wouldn't I, they want to keep their job? Or, I don't know. I, I mean, if they dislike it there, wouldn't they leave? Uh, aren't they there for the betterment of the country as opposed to the politics of it all? Well, you have to make a distinction between political appointees and career civil servants. Right. Um, political appointees who were appointed by Obama uh, would retain loyalty to uh, the Democratic Party and would be uh, suspect in terms of the needs of the Trump administration. So any staffer that's there that was appointed by uh, Obama is really just waiting to get their walking papers? Uh, yeah, basically. Yeah. They, they haven't been let go yet. But mm. uh, look what happened with Sally Yates, who was the acting attorney general. She was an appointee of the Obama administration. Um, the Trump administration made her um, acting attorney general, but then when she refused to carry out an order from the White House, um, he fired her. But, you know, the problem is that he should have had his own people in position before he undertook anything controversial. She was fired because she refused to defend the administration in court on the travel ban. Uh, here's what uh, President Donald Trump had to say on the media. Look at the way I've been treated lately, especially by the media. No politician in history, and I say this with great surety, has been treated worse or more unfairly. You can't let them get you down. You can't let the critics and the naysayers get in the way of your dreams. Uh, that is uh, Trump a few hours ago on the BBC. Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, is this a distraction? Is he being treated unfairly by people who don't support him and the media? There's no question that most people in the media are against Trump. Uh, this is not surprising because media people, as has been demonstrated for many years, are overwhelmingly pro-democratic. They tend to be liberals. And they're particularly um, opposed to Trump. So I don't know whether there's a an act of conspiracy in the media, but certainly uh, there is an effort by people in the media to embarrass Trump and, from their point of view, hopefully to bring his presidency to an early end. And I, so I think it's legitimate for him to uh, complain about that. Are they winning? Are they winning? Uh, can they can they be credited with swaying the public if this man is as good a leader as he thinks he is? I mean, at, at the end of the day, will will the public fall for this, whether it's Trump or the media? Well, the public, 
perceives what's going on because of what is conveyed to them through the media. This is why President Trump has relied on his Twitter account to try to get around the media and communicate directly to people. Now, I happen to think that he ought to shut down his Twitter account because he makes so many ridiculous statements in his tweets. But from his point of view, the media in general, although there are a few exceptions, the media in general do not treat him fairly, and therefore the public that relies on the media is not getting an accurate picture or a fair picture of what he's doing. That's his perception. Why can't he play or manipulate the media the way he does or tries to others? Why is it not working with the media? Because why are the Why is the media not buying in? Because the media, um, many key people in the media basically regard him as an illegitimate president, not in, not in the legal sense, legally he was elected, but in a, in a moral sense they feel he, he never should have become president, and therefore they are trying to undermine his credibility. I don't know. You know, like, you know I, I'm not disagreeing with what you say, Harold, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, he's feeding the media with what he says. As you, as you suggested, if he was to trim or cut out his Twitter uh, rants, a lot of this would subside, would it not? No, I don't think so. The, I, I think that whatever he does, um, he will be criticized um, because... Wait, let me bring this, let me bring this in, Harold. Uh, when he dropped, uh, when he spoke at the inauguration, his, I believe it was the inauguration, no, his, when he spoke to Congress for the first time, uh, everybody went, oh my goodness, look how presidential this person is. Right, exactly. uh, and, and the media exactly did a 180. And then after he bombed Syria after the uh, chemical gas attacks, he was a hero. But it wasn't long before he shot himself in the foot after doing things that the public saw as positive. I, I agree with you. So yeah. how, how, again, I, I just, you, you know, to me, it's him shooting himself in the foot more than it is the media. He has done a number of unwise things which give the media ammunition. But I, I, I firmly believe that, that many people in the media are out to get him no matter what he says or does. So is he a great leader that we're overlooking things here because the media is tarnishing our view? It's too soon to pass judgment on his leadership qualities. I don't think that up to this point he has demonstrated that he is a great leader. So uh, if that's what the media is reporting, how is that negative? Aren't they just reporting what they see? No, the media media do not only report what they see, they are interpreting it for their consumers. Mm -hmm. And they will, I, I think they tend to put a negative spin on almost anything he does, whether it has merits or not. And he's done a lot of, as I say, unwise things. He's, he's made some bad decisions. Um, but uh, he he's not he doesn't get any credit for anything positive he, that he may do i mean there may be temporary praise for uh, that, that one excellent speech that he made to congress 
there may be praise for the bombing of Syria, but in general, um, just about anything he does is going to be criticized, whether an objective observer would regard it in, in such a negative way. Is he being treated more poorly than other presidents in the past? Well, compare the way he's been treated to the way that President Obama was treated. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mind you, President Obama wasn't shooting himself in the foot every uh, step the way Trump is. That's true, but President Obama basically got a uh, an easy ride from the media because generally they liked him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the media tend to um, gang up on a president whom they dislike and who gives them ammunition, just as Richard Nixon did. I mean, right. Richard Nixon had a terrible time with the media. I mean, there was definitely reason for uh, the media to to dislike him, but. Uh, they had a predisposition to dislike him. So uh, we've only got about 30 seconds left, Harold. What what positive things should we take from this presidency so far? I think it's too early to uh, even talk about positive things. I, I think that he has not demonstrated yet that he's in command of the things that he has to do. I guess my point is, Harold, here is if he's not if he's not saying anything or done anything positive, then how can we report anything positive? It's not it's not concrete accomplishments. It's the way you color mm-hmm. the uh, the picture of the individual, right? And and you know, even when he might do something that is benevolent, there will be a uh, in most cases, a negative spin on it. And I think that's the problem that between him and the media. Harold Waller has been with us, professor at McGill University Political Science. Harold, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. We'll chat again. My pleasure. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.